This is Floyd Hughes, pastor of Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. I just wanted to share about my new book, Act Like an E-Christian. The E stands for evangelical. And despite what you may have heard, evangelical Christianity has nothing to do with politics. It has to do with the reason the body of Christ exists, sharing the gospel. My book, a devotional based on the book of Acts, prayerfully encourages Christ followers to return to our evangelical roots of sharing the gospel with folks in our circles of influence. It's available on Amazon in paperback and for Kindle, and you can pick up a copy today. Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. Uh, Welcome to our Sunday morning worship celebration where we love celebrating Jesus, especially when we can do it in person. We were only online last week. Uh, I love technology. This week we're in person. Uh, We will be going forward. Um, But we are going to do something that's also online. All right, so Karen had asked if I could access... um, You guys know we've been praying for Gracie Ray, her granddaughter. Um, If I could access... uh, They have a Nick View cam over the babies in the NICU, uh, and she asked if I could access it online. Um, I couldn't from our computer back there, but I did from home, and I took a little video snapshot of, um, this is Gracie Ray yesterday morning, um, who was quite active, by the way. I was like trying to like, okay, just, but yeah, you couldn't talk to her, but I was hoping she would just stay still, but she was just moving all around and uh, all kind of stuff. So uh, you guys know that we have been praying for her because she was born prematurely, um, but she's growing, she's getting better, and I'm going to ask you guys to stand, and we're going to pray for her again this morning, but when we pray for her this morning, I'm going to ask you guys, don't close your eyes, don't bow your heads. As we pray, just continue to look at that video and have her in your sight, in your hearts, and in your mind as we lift her up to God. So God, we lift up Gracie Ray to you. We pray that you would continue to heal her. Uh, We pray for hope for her family. We pray for help for them, that you would strengthen them and encourage them. Uh, And we pray for healing by the power of your hand. And we pray that you would allow us as the body of Christ to continue to lift her up and to continue to put our faith and trust in you and what you are able to do and the healing that you can provide. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And finally, I wanted to say, take a moment. Chuck, can you come on up here? And I may have to have someone else do this because I'm getting all teary-eyed. But... (laughs) Chuck has been a part of our praise team for years. I don't know how many years. How many years? A lot. It's been a long time before he moved away, and then even after he moved away, came back from time to time to play with us. But he is moving, like, far away, (laughs) too far for a local commute to join us on a Sunday morning to Colorado. Uh, When are you leaving? Wednesday. Wednesday. Wow. So I just wanted all of us, if I can get some of the guys to come up here so we can... 
pray for him. So if you want to come, just step right down here. And if you guys, are you okay with them kind of surrounding you, laying hands on you as we pray? All right. Uh, yeah, and God, we thank you so much for just the, the spark of creativity and, and ingenuity and just for everything that Chuck has been to us. He's been a band member, a friend, a brother in Christ. And as he goes, we pray that you would encourage him, strengthen him, uh, provide for him, lead him to people who will be another church family to him and be there for him, support him, and pray for him. Uh, and we just are so happy for this new and next stage of his life that he's embarking on. And we submit him and this next journey to you. Pray that you would bless it in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen, 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 amen. amen. All right, um, we're going to continue. We're actually going to wind down our series in Exodus this morning. And even though we're in the middle of June, I want to take you back to the beginning of the year because as we started this series... I want to remind everyone why we started it, because we spent all this year uh, in the book of Exodus, um, and at the beginning of 2021, uh, and no one wants to remember 2020, but at the beginning of 2021, we were talking about the fact that we all needed to move forward from the past and let go of just all the bad stuff from 2020. Uh, so we talked about the fact, I think, if I'm not correct, I started off by saying 2020 sucked which it did. Uh, so we started walking through the book of Exodus to see how God took an entire people group from where they were, from their situation, and allowed them to leave their past behind, their hurts, their grudges, their angers, all the issues that they were dealing with. Now, because we're going to end this series, I'm going to summarize a lot of what we already talked about, and then we're going to wind down uh, finishing it. Uh, but the first thing that God did is he removed them from physical bondage, right? They were in slavery uh, because they were in a government system that was greedy and racist and hated them because of what they did and the work they did. So they enslaved them because of fear of them, right? So uh, they were enduring all of this physical bondage. And God had to do a lot. And we walked through all these plagues. I'm not going to go in detail, but we walked through all these plagues that God did to free them from the physical bondage that they were in. With the plague, he turned the, uh, the river, the Nile River to blood, which caused dehydration, uh, a plague of frogs and lice and flies, which called sickness throughout the nation. Um, the plague on the livestock caused all the livestock to die, which not only caused hunger, because it was a food source, but also economic hardship, because that was their vehicles. That was their, their bus, their train, their trucks, their, their uh, vehicles that did all of their work for them. So that caused economic and hunger. Uh, then the plague of boils caused a work stoppage, because we looked where it literally says in the Bible that they physically couldn't stand because of the boils. So no one was doing any work. And then a plague of hail, not only did it do property damage, but it also destroyed all of their crops, which was a food source. And then the plague of locusts took any remaining food, the Bible said, that was still out in the fields, were destroyed by the locusts. Then they spent three days in darkness. Like we spent months indoors because of a lockdown, but we had tablets and books and phones and TV, and I don't know about you, but I caught up on almost every Netflix show during that time. 
But they didn't have all that. And it wasn't three days without power, right? It was three days of total darkness where you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And then the grief that came from the death of the firstborn, from the house of Pharaoh all the way down to the handmaiden. Everyone lost a firstborn. So that devastated the nation. And through that, God was able to finally free them from bondage. And it didn't have to go through all that, but the Bible said over and over that Pharaoh's heart was hard or stubborn or he refused to give in to God, right? And so then God said, hey, now that we're out, now that I've got you out of Egypt, now that you're away from the physical bondage, God said, you're still in this spiritual bondage. You're no longer a slave to Pharaoh, but you're still a slave to sin. So he started revealing to them all of these laws, and we talked about a bunch of them uh, in Exodus, but many other ones he revealed throughout uh, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and in total it came out to 613 laws. Some of them were the civil laws, which was here's what's right, here's what's wrong, right? Morality, uh, you know, don't do this, don't do that. Some of them were ceremonial laws. Here's how to worship God because they had never done that before, right? And some of them were just cultural laws that even though we read about them, they mean absolutely nothing to us because we're not in that culture and we're not in that time. Now, for that 613 laws, and like I said, some of them were revealed in later books, uh, but what we saw revealed were the Ten Commandments. This was like a trailer of here's all of these laws that God's going to reveal. And he revealed them through the Ten Commandments, uh, which we spent some time talking about this. Uh, the first four had to do with worshiping God. He said, you're to have no other gods before me, no idols, not just idols that you create, because most, most things say no graven images, meaning you create, but we're not to have any idols. Our politics are not to be our idol. Uh, our families are not to be our idol. Our relationship is not to be our idol. Nothing that we worship ahead of God. Uh, we're, he said, don't misuse God's name, although most versions say use the Lord's name in vain. But it wasn't just using his name like as a curse word. It's misusing his name and saying, it, like if I say God said it's okay to do this thing, even though God said it's not okay to do this thing, that's me misusing God's name. I'm assigning authority to something that God said don't do, so I'm misusing his name. And then the most important one that does still apply, even though it's not as legalistic as some people think, is remember the Sabbath. Basically, remember to take a day and spend some time with God. The other six kind of flow from the first four, because if you don't have a right situation with God, then you're not going to be able to honor your mother and father no murder, which Jesus said, but if you hate people in your heart, you've kind of murdered them already. No adultery, no stealing, no lying. And although most versions say no coveting, right? None of us use that word today, but it's, it's really lusting after people or things. Because it's basically saying, hey, God, I'm not okay with what you provided. I want what you gave to Chuck. I want to go live in Colorado. I don't pretty cool, but that, that's what coveting really works out to be. So he took these, right, these 613 laws, gave them a trailer. Here's the Ten Commandments. Jesus later took these, and we looked at this, and he said, hey, all 613 laws, Ten Commandments, everything can be summed up in two rules that we are to follow, 
and that's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the things that, that God commanded. So now, um, God took them out, and a lot of people look at this and say, well, this is, this is not, you know, this is just Bible fantasy. The exodus never happened. Why should we believe? And, and the biggest, the biggest, like, uh, I guess, reason that I hear from people is like, hey, there's no other evidence outside of the Bible that says that any of this happened. This is just a fanciful story. And so we walk through a bunch of evidence. Uh, and I think I shared eight with you, and I'll share two more. I'll summarize the eight really quickly. We talked about there's a, a document called the Brooklyn Papyrus, which shows that the Israelites were in Egypt. The whole bunch of Israelites lived in Egypt because you can't say they left Egypt if they didn't leave there. There's a, a piece of art called a Reckmeyer art that shows Hebrew slaves making bricks from mud, which is right out of the Bible. Um, they did some excavations, and archaeologists found storage silos in the city of Ramesses, which is literally stated in Exodus chapter 1. Uh, there's a document called the Ipure Papyrus, and this wasn't written by any Hebrew person. It was written by an Egyptian official who was complaining about the government, and his complaints were that the river, the Nile, had turned to blood, that the land was filled with plagues, that the first, he didn't say firstborn, but that the children were dying, which kind of matches up with the death of the firstborn. And his complaint was that the power of Ra, the sun god, wasn't seen for days, which matches up with the three days of darkness. Right? And then uh, we looked and we saw that uh, the biblical date of uh, 1446 matches up with what archaeologists found. And then we, we talked about the fact that the, the pharaoh at that time was Amenhotep II. He fits the biblical profile, right? Because he didn't do any military campaigns. I think he did one, actually. His predecessor, his father, did 17. He did one, which is what you would expect if your entire country had been decimated and if your army is destroyed in the sea. And then three years later, I think it's three years later, in 1443 BC, he conducted a slave raid, which is what you would expect if all your slaves went free, right? And then his son, who was the firstborn supposed to be the pharaoh, according to their uh, tradition, disappears after the record of his birth. And his secondborn son makes an appeal to the gods to, hey, let me be the pharaoh, the next pharaoh, which is what you expect if your firstborn child dies, which is what the Bible records. Then we talked, uh, I think this was last week or the week before last, about this document called the Armana Letters that show that the Habaru or the Hebrew people were in the land of Canaan. Uh, there's a stele. A stele is just an archaeological term for a document that they find. Uh, there's a Manepta stele, which records an Egyptian pharaoh, I think it's about 300 years after the Exodus, who claims, hey, I went into the land of Canaan, and I defeated the most powerful people in the land, and he says that they were the Israelite people which is what the Bible records, that they went into the land of Canaan and they conquered the entire land. And then in number eight, there's this document called the Solab Inscription. It's on a column, 
and it lists the fact that there were lots of wandering tribes during that time, and one of the tribes is the tribe, they call them the Yahweh Wanderers, or the Yahweh, uh, I forget the exact phrase that they use, um, the Yahweh Nomads, the Nomads of Yahweh, that's what they call them, because they were this wandering people, which also supports the fact that the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years. So number nine, though, and this is interesting, uh, there's a document called the Manatho Letters. This man, Manatho, was an Egyptian priest and historian. He lived about 1,100 years after the Exodus. He, 1,100 years after the Exodus, went back and researched Egyptian history and documents. And here's what he found and he attested to. He found that there were these group of people called the Habarus or Hebrews, who came from the land of Canaan and lived in Egypt. He then recorded that after a while, they were kicked out of Egypt by an agreement with the government. Now, we know that agreement was, okay, God, we give up. They can now go. He then says that these people that were kicked out, they wandered around then they went to Jerusalem and built a temple. And again, this isn't a, a, a Jewish person or a, a biblical text. This is an Egyptian scholar saying, hey, when I went and researched this, this is what I found. And he says the pharaoh at the time that all this happened was a man named Aminophis, which is the Greek term for Aminhotep. So all of this information fits into the 10th piece of information, which isn't specific, but the 10th piece is there's this, this, this method that people use, archaeologists and historians, to verify if something is true. This is the method that they used in order to verify that, yeah, here are the places that Alexander the Great conquered. This is the method they used to verify that, yeah, here's what happened to Julius Caesar. And the way that they verify it is they look at historical events and they ask, are there any other sources? Because if it's just one source, you can't verify that it happened. And what we just looked at are multiple sources that verify the events in the Bible. They looked at, is there any archaeological evidence, because anyone can say something happened, but is there any archaeological evidence, pieces or documents or inscriptions that will support this claim? And we just went through a bunch. And what they do is they put all these pieces together to get an accurate picture of past events. And when the picture lines up, they say, hey, here's what happened in history. So even outside of a biblical concept, archaeological evidence, historical evidence, all of this shows that God showed up to free his people from slavery, which is encouraging to us because that's what God wants to do to us. God doesn't just want us to be free from bondage, from addictions, from struggles or whatever. He also wants us equally to be free from sin, from the struggles that we go through, from all the, the, the things that kind of beat at us day after day after day. So we're going to wind down quickly. If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Exodus chapter 40, which is the last chapter of the book of Exodus. And I'll tell you this, um, the book of Exodus ends where right, I think it's the day before the book of Leviticus starts. Some say it's the same day, some say it's the next day. And I'll show you that in a minute. So in Exodus chapter 40, if you don't have a Bible, should be one under your chair, left, right of you. 
uh, somewhere around there. And in Exodus chapter 40, this is what we read in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, set up the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, on the first day of the first month. And a couple of weeks ago, we went through talking about all the articles in the temple, the tabernacle, all these things that God had them make so that they would be able to experience not just freedom from bondage, but freedom from sin. Verse 3, place the ark of the testimony in it and shield the ark with the curtain. Bring in a table and set out what belongs on it. Then bring in a lampstand and set up its lamps. When the lamp was going to be the thing that provided the light. He said, place the gold altar of incense in the ark of the testimony and put the curtain at the tenth entrance to the temple. And the, the, uh, uh, the incense were the prayers of the people, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He said, place the altar of burnt offering, which was there to show that in order to enter the presence of God, there had to be an offering in front of the entrance to the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Place the basin, which is a reminder of being cleansed from sin. Place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Set it up in a courtyard around it and put the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so now they're in the desert. They're free from, from physical sin. I mean, from physical bondage. And God has set up all of these items for them to use to be able to worship him and to experience ongoing freedom from spiritual bondage, from sin. Drop down to verse 12. So they set all this up, and then he says, Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments, anoint him, and consecrate him. So he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons, dress them in tunics, anoint them just as you anointed their father, so they may serve me as priests. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue for all generations to come. And Moses did all that. And the thing is that God was saying, hey, there, there, there needs to be this intercession between God and man so that God could go and say, thus saith the Lord. And then that person could go and make sure that God's will was done correctly. And even though the Old Testament has been fulfilled through Jesus Christ, we're still that priesthood today. Because what Peter tells us in the book of 1 Peter, he says you, and he's talking to the church. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to anyone who steps across the line of faith. He says you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may, and here's why God chose us. Here's why we're this priesthood. So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And this is where sometimes as Christians we get a little bit wrong. Because we believe that our goal as Christians is to go to people and say, hey, you're a sinner. You need to be saved. That's not what that says. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to go to people and say, hey, I used to be a sinner, but God saved me. I used to deal with this addiction, but God saved me. I used to deal with anger and depression and frustration, but God saved me, and he can do the same for you. We're not supposed to go to people to condemn them. We're supposed to go to people and declare the praises of him who saved us. And that way then they are interested to know, well, if God can do that for you, because I know you, Floyd, you used to be a jerk. Some people still think I am, but, but if God can do that for you, then perhaps God can do that for me. That's what we're supposed to do. All right, so drop down to verse 17. 
So the tabernacle was set up on the first day of the first month in the second year. When Moses set up the tabernacle, he put the bases in place, erected the frames, inserted the crossbars, set up the posts. Then he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering over the tent as the Lord commanded him. So one year after leaving Egypt, one year after being free from physical bondage, God had them in the place and he set up everything that they needed to experience spiritual bondage. Right? God had provided all the resources, uh, everything they needed, uh, and then once it was all set up, God started dwelling among them. And I'm going to put the last couple of verses, because the next couple of verses talk about just all the other things that they set up. But then the way that Exodus ends is this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in all their travels, when they needed to move, when they needed to go, everywhere where they were going, in all their travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels, right? So this whole book wasn't about God getting them out of Egypt to a certain destination. It was about God getting them out of Egypt and then getting them to a place where he could begin to equip them so that he could be with them on the journey, Right? It wasn't getting the Israelites to a destination. It was having God free them and then lead them along the way. And what a lot of people do is they say, hey, you know what? Uh, you know, I'm a Christ follower. God saved me. And then they think that's it. But there's still a journey that we have to go on, a lifelong journey. We have to live the rest of our lives. And here's the reality. A lot of these people, uh, and I think we said it was like 1.2 or 1.5 million people left out of Egypt but they didn't all make it to the promised land, right? Some of them, the journey ended because of disbelief. They didn't believe that God could get them to where they were supposed to go, even though they saw all the things he did. Some of them, it ended because of disobedience. Even though God said, you know, have no gods before me and obey me, and we talked a few weeks ago about one of the first things they did was have a, like, I don't want to call it a rave, but a wild out of control, the Bible says, party, where they worshiped an idol that they created, violated the very thing God said don't do. And then for some of them, they just loved their old life too much. Yeah, they were like, hey, God can provide. But when things got hard, they were like, I'm going to go back to this because this was easy and this was fun and this was better for me. And right on the promise, right on the, the edge of getting into the promised land, this is what happens. And some of you are familiar with the story uh, where Joshua sent out the spies to check out the land, and they go check out the land, and they're like, oh, we, we, we can't do that. The struggles are too big. The enemies are too big. And then that night, all the members of the community raised their voices, and they wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or this wilderness. And they said, why is the Lord bringing us to this land 
only to let us fall by the sword. They didn't think that God could defeat their enemy. And they said, our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And there's a lot of people that this is what they do when things get hard, when things get rough, when things get difficult. Rather than trusting God to overcome it, it's a lot easier to just go back to what I'm used to. And we tend to forget that what we were in was way worse than where we're going. It's one thing. I can't see where God's taking us. I don't know where we're going. I do know what I was in. But in our memory of what we were in, we forget the pain, we forget the anguish, we forget the hurt. A lot of people that deal with addictions, a lot of people that deal with uh, harsh relationships go back to harsh relationships. All of these things that God has brought us out of, he wants to keep us out of. And he doesn't want us to go back into them. So God, just like he did for the Israelites, he set up all of these things. And I know it doesn't make sense to us. There's a tabernacle, there's a basin, there's a land. All of these things were set up so that over and over, every struggle, they had a place to worship God. And they could go and they could put their faith in God. And they could know that God will see us through. And even though they had those things, they still said, I don't know if God can do that. And for us, God gives us a series of things, same way, not like that, not physical things, but a series of things that we can do so that we can ensure that we don't end up back in the thing that God delivered us from. So I'm going to walk through that quickly, uh, and then we're going to wind down. So in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter said to them, you yourselves are aware how it's not lawful or permissible for a Jew to company, keep company with, or to visit, or come near, or speak first to anyone of another nationality. But God has shown and taught me by his words that I should not call any human being common or unhallowed or unclean. This is Peter, who where Peter used to think, you know what? I'm not even supposed to talk to you guys. I'm not even supposed to meet up with you guys. I'm not supposed to have anything to do with you. But then God showed him, hey, guess what? It's okay. And first of all, uh, that wasn't what God said. It wasn't unlawful. The Jews made it unlawful. God said, don't associate it with people who are engaged in sin because then you'll be like them. He didn't say you can't talk to them or go into their house, but that was something the Jews put in place. God's hope was that you would talk to them and you would go into their house because you're supposed to be a light for the nations. So this same Peter, right, who said, hey, God showed me that it's okay to talk to everyone, ends up being the first person who crosses the line, goes to the Gentile, shares God with them, and Gentile, non-Jewish people, start getting saved. A little while later, Peter goes back to not going to and not talking to the Jews because Paul tells us in Galatians that he had to confront Peter about this. He says, when Cephas Peter came to Antioch, I protested and opposed him to his face concerning his conduct there, for he was blamable and stood condemned, and here's what he stood condemned for. Up to that time that certain persons came from James, he ate his meals with the Gentile converts. He was one of the first people that converted him. So he would sit down with them. He would say, let's go to Chick-fil-A. Let's go to McDonald's. Let's go have a burger. But then when the Jewish people came, he was like, oh, well, we're not really supposed to eat with you, so I can't hang out with you anymore. He went back to doing the thing that the Holy Spirit had literally shown him it's okay to do. 
And this is what happens to us. God frees us from something, frees us from sin, frees us from some issue, frees us from some addiction. Then we get around certain people and we slide right back to doing that thing that God delivered us from. Now, Peter ends up later realizing this and he comes up with this, I don't want to say process, but this way that we can keep from going back to doing the things that we used to do. Uh, and we're going to end, end with this. In 2 Peter, this is what he writes. He says, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And this knowledge of God is going to be key to not going back to doing the things that we used to do that God delivered us from. Uh, he says this. He says, his divine power has given us everything we need for our godly life, through our knowledge of him. Now, I'm, 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 I want to make sure we understand that. What Peter is saying is, hey, the divine power of God has given us everything we need so that we can live a life that's pleasing to God, right? Because right now, most of us probably, we, well, in order to please God, I got to do this, I got to do that, I got to make sure I show up in church on Sunday, I got to, if I miss Sunday, I've got to watch it on YouTube, or I've got to do this, all these things that we come up with. But what Peter said way before YouTube was invented was that God has given us everything that we need to live a God-honoring life. He says, through these things, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Basically what he's saying is, hey, the promises that God gives us to provide for us, to keep us to, to make sure that we, that, you know, like we prayed for healing for Gracie Ray, and we're trusting that God can do that. All of these promises that he's given us help us participate in the divine nature, but also they help us stay away from living a sinful life. Now, this next part may be a bit long, but I'm going to summarize it in a minute. He says, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, add to goodness knowledge, Add to knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, to godliness, mutual affection, mutual affection, love. And if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't worry, I'm going to summarize this in a minute. But he says, whoever does not have these things is nearsighted and blind, and they forget that they have been cleansed from their past sins. In other words, he says, if you don't have these things and you're not doing these things, you kind of forget that God already delivered you from this past sin and you slip back into this past sin. You forget that God told you it's okay to talk to people that don't look like you, think like you, or vote like you, and you slip back to avoiding those people because they're not like you. And here's, let me, let me summarize all this. Here's what he says. He says the first thing we need to know is knowledge of God. We need to seek to know God. If you seek to know God it will increase your faith with knowledge of God. If you seek to know more about God, then God is not going to be like, I'm not going to tell you anything about me. God says, you want to know more about me? Here, let me reveal more of myself to you. As our faith is increased with the knowledge of God, then we end up doing godly actions. 
So as our faith is increased with more knowledge about God, then we start doing things that are more like God. As we start doing things that are more like God, then we get more knowledge of God because we start to experience, now I understand why God said, yes, we should serve, why we should do this, why we should do that. It makes more sense, and we start to understand more. We get more knowledge of God. As we get more knowledge of God, we get more self-control. And that's the key to the whole thing. Because if I have self-control, then it's easy not to slip back into doing the things I used to do that were displeasing to God. And I have more self-control because I have more knowledge of God. I have more knowledge of God because I was doing things like God. I was doing things like, not that we are God. I'm just saying we were doing more actions. The Bible says that, uh, that good deeds that we do aren't to try to achieve a relationship with God. They come out of our faith with God. As I experience more self-control, then I have more perseverance and more patience. See, if I have more perseverance, then regardless of how long the struggle that I'm going through goes on, I'm okay because I have more patience. I can withstand this struggle. I can deal with it because I know that God is going to come through. I know that God's going to come through because I have more self-control. The only reason I have that self-control is because I have more knowledge of God. If I have more perseverance and more patience, then I can have more godliness or what we use the term holiness. Not holier than thou, but more holiness. The things that I say and I do, what comes out of me are more of a reflection of God than of me because I have more perseverance, which I got from having more self-control, which I got from more knowledge of God, which I only got because I was doing things like God because of my increased faith from knowing God. If I have more godliness, I can then love others. It's so much easier to love people that don't look like me, think like me, talk like me, vote like me, and even the people that hate me, not because of me, but because of the God in me, because of the perseverance that I have and the patience that I have, because of the self-control that comes from the knowledge of God, comes from doing things in a God-honoring way, comes from increasing my faith because I was seeking God. And if I love others more, once I start loving others more, what happens is I end up wanting to spend more time with God and seek Him more. This is the spiritual circle of life. This is how Peter says, hey, I can keep from going back into doing the things I used to do that were displeasing to God by seeking to know God, increasing my faith with the knowledge of God, which is going to allow me to do more things or, or do what some people call good deeds, godly actions, which is going to increase my knowledge of God, which again is going to give me more self-control, not because I'm that good, just because of the self-control God gives me which is going to give me more perseverance and patience, which is going to make me more holy or experience more godliness, which is going to allow me to love others. And the more I love people, the more I want to seek after God so I can continue to do it. And so what Peter is saying is the same thing that literally every pastor since Acts chapter 2 occurred. The Holy Spirit fell on humanity, has said, and that's that if we want to increase our knowledge of God, we need to spend more time with God. And as we do that, it's going to create this circle of life that makes it easier to not slip back into the things that God has delivered us from. 
So here's what I'm going to ask us to do. If you haven't already done so, uh, and you can do this now or you can do this later, uh, there is an app called the YouVersion Bible app, right? Uh, and it's actually made by a church. There's a church organization, mega church, and they put out all kinds of products uh, for free to the Christian community to help make Christian lives better. Uh, and in this app, um, they have what they call not just the Bible, so you can find it in many translations. They have daily reading plans. Because if you're like me, it's hard to set aside time and say, I'm just going to read through the Bible, read through the Bible. It's a piece of gum on my Bible. But um, read through the Bible, read through the Bible. And even when you try to do that, you get distracted and all that stuff. And if you're like me, I'm not a big reader. I have to force myself to do it, right? But they have what they call reading plans that are short. And this particular one I thought would be great for us to do together. So if you have this Bible app on your phone or on your tablet, uh, you can go down to, when you open it, uh, there's a bunch of icons. The one that says Discover, if you tap on the one that says Discover, uh, it'll take you to the search field. If you type in the word Kryptonite, and let me tell you why I chose the word Kryptonite. Okay, so um, for, for, for... for all of us, right, we have struggles, we have weaknesses, we have things that prevent us from, you know, moving forward with God. Superman, I don't know if you guys know this or if you've ever heard me talk about him, but he is like the most powerful superhero, not in the world because he's not real, but in comic book creation. Some would argue the Hulk, some would argue Dragon Ball Z, Super, Super, Super Saiyan. Don't Google Dragon Ball Z, Super, Super, Super Saiyan, but all that stuff, some would argue, but for lack of a better term, Superman, most powerful, right? But he has a weakness, just like we do. His weakness is kryptonite. It's this thing that takes the most powerful superhero in all the comics and literally lays him out, makes him weak. And we all have weaknesses too, things that keep us from moving forward with God. So if you type in kryptonite, you will find this plan that says, killing kryptonite was John Beaver and it looks like this. I think it's actually Bevere. can't remember. It's a plan, and I think it's like a seven-day plan, very short reading plan. Which I think it has some audio in it. I have not done it yet. That we can all do together. So if you go search for it, you can click Save for Later. It'll give you a little calendar where you can pick a date. And then starting tomorrow morning, all of us are going to start reading this together. So that together... As a congregation, we can all start killing those things that keep us from moving forward with God. And it's not that just because I'm a pastor, I'm, I'm like immune to all this stuff. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't say. There are very, I don't want to say many, but a whole lot of times where Christy has had to stop me and say, what in the ham sandwich are you doing? because I said something that I shouldn't have said or that was out of line or did something that, that wasn't God-honoring. I mean, we're all human. We all make mistakes. And sometimes we all slip back into those places that God has taken the time to deliver us from. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of end the book of Exodus where the people of Israel ended it in the presence of God And we're going to start tomorrow and do the same thing that they did, start a journey with God. So right now, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. God, we pray that just like the people 
in the book of Exodus that we would acknowledge, yes, that you have delivered us from some physical strongholds in our lives. Some of us, it may have been addictions. Some of us, it may have been relationships. Some of us, it may have been jobs that we had no business being in. Some of us, you may have delivered from toxic people in our lives who are trying to keep us from you. And we thank you for that deliverance. But we also acknowledge that you have delivered all of us from the stronghold of sin. And if there is anyone, whether they're listening online or here, who hasn't been delivered from that, there is not a prayer you need to say. There's not a, a, a list that you need to go through. It's just acknowledging that God sent his son to pay the penalty for our sins by dying in our place. And that when we accept and believe that, then we become part of your family. And you send us the promised seal of your Son, the Holy Spirit, to ensure that we know that we are now yours. But we also acknowledge that despite the physical things that you have delivered us from and the sin that you have delivered us from, that sometimes we slip back into habits that are less than God-honoring. And we treat people in ways they don't need to be treated. We act in ways that we don't need to act. And we go back to habits that you have freed us from. So just like the Israelites, tomorrow, the next day, we want to start a spiritual journey in your presence together as your people moving forward taking us to the place that you want us to be. We pray that your hand would be upon us as we do this. We pray that you would reveal to us those areas of weakness in our life that keep us from moving forward with you. And we pray that as a community, we're able to uphold and lift up one another and be there for one another and love on one another and support one another. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. 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 We hope you enjoyed the message. If you did, please leave a comment on our webpage, crossroadsofjeffersonhills.com, or our Facebook page. You can also join our Sunday celebration every Sunday at 1037 a.m. We look forward to hearing from you online or in person. Thank you and God bless.